If you brought your Bible with you or your phone or iPad, whatever you're carrying these days, 1 Kings chapter 18 in the Old Testament, 1 Kings 18. If you need a Bible, we can supply that for you because we keep some in the back just in case you got out the door without yours. And there's a little note page, looks like this. You might want to grab that from your bulletin because that will be some help along the way. One day, a young man was writing a letter to his girlfriend who lived just uh, the next town over from him. And among other things, he was telling her how much he loved her and how wonderful that she was and, and how devoted he was to her. And the more he wrote, the more poetic he became in his letter. He said that in order to be with her, he would suffer the greatest difficulties. He would face the greatest dangers that anyone could imagine. Uh, in fact, to spend only one minute with her, he would climb the highest mountain in the world. He would swim the widest river. He would enter the deepest forest. And with his bare hands, he would fight against the fiercest animals. So this is how his letter goes. And, and finally, he finishes the letter. He signed his name, and he's about to put it in the envelope when he remembered that he had forgotten to mention a very important point. And so he adds, P.S., I will be over to see you on Wednesday night as long as it doesn't rain. <laughs> well, I'm not sure that, that this young fellow was as devoted to the relationship as maybe he thought that he was. And I'll be that as it may. Devotion to a relationship does, in fact, lie at the very heart this morning of the things that we want to be sharing together, devotion to our relationship with our God. That's what comes into view as we continue to explore the story and the life of Elijah today. One of the, one of the Bible's truly great Old Testament figures and one whose life has much to teach us if we will make ourselves open to being taught. And, and so we invite the Holy Spirit to come, church family, and to be our teacher this morning and to bring to life those things that, that God would have for us to know so that we might live more effectively for Jesus. Now, if you haven't been with us up to this point in our study series, and I think this is our fourth uh, run at the life of Elijah, let's see if we can just quickly bring you up to speed. For those of us who have been here, this will just serve as a quick reminder for us. National Israel has gone off the deep end spiritually, thanks in large measure to a succession of godless kings that have sat on the throne of Israel. These wicked kings uh, introduced and then promoted idol worship in Israel, a rejection of Israel's true God, Yahweh Elohim, and an embrace of false gods that are made of wood and of stone. The king on Israel's throne in 850 B.C. is a guy by the name of Ahab. And he is by far the most evil of all of the kings up to this time. 1 Kings 16.33 says that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings who had come before him. And that's saying something. That's not a distinction you'd want to have. In 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 25, we read, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He and his foreign queen, named Jezebel, had made worship of Baal and Asherah 
the official and only allowed religion in Israel. Now, Baal was, as we have learned, the pagan god of agriculture and the harvest, the god who controlled rain and water. He was the god of the sun, the god who made the crops grow and and provided food for the people. Asherah was the goddess of fertility. She was the goddess of new life. In short, Israel's devotion to Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, was out and the worship of Baal and Asherah was in. It was the most bold and defiant rejection of God up to this time. A complete violation of the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, says the Lord. Ahab and Jezebel, well, they don't care. It's Baal and Asherah, and if you don't go along with them, they're going to kill you. They will kill you. These are dark, dark days spiritually for Israel. So it's into this darkness that God sends a light to shine brightly for him, and that light is Elijah. He's going to be God's voice. He's going to be God's mouthpiece to a wicked king and to a deceived and confused people, Israel. Elijah is devoted to his God with his whole heart, and he bursts on the scene without any announcement in verse 1 of chapter 17. He says to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, before whom I am devoted There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. God is going to strike at the very heart of Baal and Asherah's perceived power by bringing a drought that is so severe to Israel that it will suck the last drop of moisture out of the land. Devastation and death are going to be everywhere and everyone in Israel is going to be made to wonder by virtue of this drought, are Baal and Asherah really in control? Are they really God in control? The king says they are. But Elijah's God has made this pronouncement. Who is in control? Who is really God? So while the deadly drought does its good work, we learned that God protects Elijah from Ahab and Jezebel. We learn early in chapter 18 that Ahab has such a hatred for Elijah that he has posted wanted dead or alive posters everywhere in Israel. He has even sent messengers to all of the surrounding nations and kings and makes them swear that they're not harboring Elijah uh, and that they don't know where he is at. And he says, if If I learn that you're lying to me and you have been keeping Elijah from me, I will show you no mercy. He says that. To keep Elijah safe, God sends him first into a desert place, a place called Kareth, where there was a little brook. And then he sends him to a foreign town by the name of Zarephath. And we've been learning about those two places over the last few weeks. And God supernaturally provides for him in both of these places and teaches him that he truly is uh, the God for Elijah and that this God can do impossible things. And so for three and a half years that this drought lasts, God is, is getting Elijah ready for a showdown, a showdown between the Lord God and, and the false gods Baal and Asherah. 
And this showdown is going to answer the question beyond all doubt, who is really God in Israel? The question of where one's loyalty, where one's love and devotion should be directed is not going to be in doubt in a very short period of time. So in order for that to happen, Israel's most wanted, Elijah, has to come out of hiding. And he does that with the opening of chapter 18. As you might be there, look at verse 1. We read these words. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, the third year of the drought, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Well, that's an understatement, isn't it? The three years of drought and famine, though, are about to come to a close. And the greatest event in Elijah's prophetic life is about to begin. Now, how does the drought near its end? Well, Elijah said in 17.1 that it wouldn't end until Ahab heard from him again. And that's important. It's important that the drought ends upon the word of God which comes through Elijah because if God simply sends the rain at the end of the three and a half years without Elijah declaring this, well, then Ahab and wicked Jezebel will simply twist the moment and say, see, Elijah, Baal and Asherah have in fact triumphed over your God. It took three and a half years, but they did it. So it's important that Elijah comes to to Ahab and makes this pronouncement. So he heads for Samaria. It's a trek of about 100 miles across ground that hasn't seen water for these three and a half years. Burning sun, dusty roads, brown fields, dead livestock, new graves are everywhere. Verse 2, so Elijah went to show himself and the famine was severe. We want to know that. We need to know that. Then we jump over to verse 17 of chapter 18. When Ahab, who is accompanied by his right-hand man Obadiah, whom we learn a little bit about in the first half of the chapter, but we're not going to hang out with him today. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Now, you have to say that with your eyes kind of on fire and a bit of a scornful hiss in your voice because that's really how Ahab would have said that. Is it you, you troubler of Israel? I like that. That's <laughs> it works with my cold, too. You know. <laughs> Elijah answers, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Do you detect a hint of fear in Elijah? In his voice? In his words? Absolutely not. I don't detect any fear here. He stands boldly before the king and when Ahab tries to blame him for the devastation that has come on Israel, Elijah says, says it the way it really is. Ahab, this is all on you and on the kings who have preceded you because you have forsaken your devotion to the true God and you have gone after false gods. That's the way it really is. This is all on you. Reminds us again, church family, that sin 
has consequences. Ahab's choices have impacted not only his life, but the life of all those whom he rules. There's this, and, and this is true really on a national level, that sin has consequences. It's true on an individual level. You remember Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 says, Don't lie to yourself. God is never mocked. A person sows what they reaps what they sow. And so on a national level, we can't cast God aside as a people and say that his word no longer matters, right? Without there being consequences for that. Think about that in our time. This past Friday marked the 43rd anniversary. I'm sure you noted it. The 43rd anniversary of Roe versus Wade and the legalizing of abortion in our country. 43 years that law has been on the books. More than 55 million of our citizens made in the image of God have been murdered because that law is in place. Before those, those lives could even draw their first breath. That national decision on the part of our lawmakers by the nation that we are all a part of can only have one outcome. And that is the removal of divine favor from upon us and a judgment to come. Would you agree? Yes. That's because sin always has consequences. What's true on a national level is also true on an individual and personal level because God and his holy word are immutable and unchangeable and he will not be mocked. Sin carries consequences. And only our faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus spares us from the eternal consequences of sin, right? It's only because of Jesus that you and I will not bear the judgment of God upon our lives. And we say amen. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. I have not troubled you, Elijah says. You and your father's house have troubled Israel because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Elijah's bold confrontation is then followed up by a a, a call to, to a mountain, a call to Mount Carmel. Verse 19 in your Bible. Elijah says, Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah proposes a contest, a showdown between Ahab and Israel's adopted gods, Baal and Asherah, and the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, that he serves. And as we're about to read in a moment, whichever God shows up in the form of fire from heaven, well, that's going to be the true God. Ahab accepts this proposal, not surprisingly. If he didn't, word would circulate rather quickly that he had refused Elijah's uh, offer, which would create an, uh, e- even more questions for the pe- people about Baal and Asherah and who's really God and who's really calling the shots. And so for Ahab to say no to this proposal would have made Baal's position even more suspect. And so he says, yes, I accept the proposal, a showdown on Mount Carmel. And this is a picture of Mount Carmel today. Uh, For those of you who have not made that trek to Israel and haven't had the opportunity, uh, I have had that opportunity with my wife, Lisa, and we've stood on top of this mountain, which really isn't a single mountain. It's this 
this long ridge as you see it there in the picture. If you look east off of that ridge down uh, into the Jezreel Valley in the foreground of this picture, uh, you're looking into uh, an amazing place of fertility. Uh, if you look west, on the other side is the Mediterranean Sea. And so as Elijah calls for this contest on Mount Carmel, what we want to understand is that Elijah is giving every possible advantage to Baal and to Asherah to win this contest. He knows that Mount Carmel has a number of altars already on it to Baal. They've been on this, this mountain, these altars, for more than 60 years. The valley below, it's incredibly rich and fertile. That would have played into Baal's hand because he's the god of agriculture. It's a mountain uh, that is closer to the sun than, than, than the valley below, and that would play into uh, Baal's favor as well because he's the god of the sun, the god of heat, the god of fire. The odds, as Elijah notes in his words, 850 prophets to Baal, one prophet to Yahweh. The odds are 850 to 1. Advantage Baal. And as we're going to see, Elijah is going to let the prophets of Baal go first in this contest and give them all the time that they want to call upon their gods. Advantage Baal at every turn. And I point this out just to remind us that Yahweh Elohim, your God, my God, our God, loves it when the odds are so stacked against him that nobody would give him any chance of victory. God loves that. And if you know his word, you know this is true, right? I mean, think about Gideon. Think about Gideon in the Old Testament fighting 135,000 Midianites with how many soldiers in his army? 300, right? 135,000 to 300. Yeah, God loves those kinds of odds. Think about David. A teenage shepherd boy going up against a nine-foot-tall, experienced warrior giant. God loves those kind of odds. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. What happens to them? They're thrown into a fiery furnace. God loves those odds. Or how about Daniel himself stepping into a den of lions? No one could survive that. God says, I love those odds. Or how about Jonah? He's supposed to be fish food, right? But he's not. Jesus feeds 5,000, which is more like 10 to 13,000 people with what? A picnic basket, right? God loves those kinds of odds. And that's a great thing for you and I to remember. Our God loves impossible situations because he shows himself great. In those moments. And so perhaps this morning, if you are facing what feels to you like an impossible thing, there's no way that you can come out of this on the backside of it in a good place. Well, remember who your God is. He's the God who loves the impossible. And he does the impossible. Verse 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and he said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If, if, but if Baal, then follow him. And what's the next line? And the people did not answer him a word. Boy, that's a, that is a telling line, isn't it? That is a revealing line. 
about the true spiritual condition of national Israel in this moment. The nation knows nothing about devotion, really, to anything. No commitment, no trust, no faith. The nation and her people are sitting on the fence, we would say. Sitting on the fence spiritually. And that is, church family, a dangerous place to sit. Tolerating everything and in the end, actually believing nothing. Right? That's where they're at. That was true for Israel. Can you think of another nation that might be in this same dangerous place of tolerating everything and not really believing in anything? Oh, really? Yes. Yes. A nation that in the name of tolerating everything has lost its moral compass, has sacrificed truth in order to avoid conflict, has forsaken what is right for what is called individual rights and is seeking to remove God's name and law from hallways and courtrooms and assembly rooms and in in fact is standing for nothing. That is us, isn't it? Yes. 2,800 years separate us from Israel. But it's the same. It's exactly the same climate as theirs. We live in this kind of a time. And God finds offense writing particularly offensive, doesn't he? How do we know that? We know that from a number of places in Scripture, but the one that comes most quickly to my mind is the words of Jesus when he speaks to the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Remember, remember this? The last church that Jesus talks to there, Revelation 3.15. I know your works. They are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, you're neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. What does that tell you about the heart of God towards riding the fence? (laughs) He doesn't like that. Israel's sitting on the spiritual fence, and that is a dangerous place to be. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a, a German pastor, who in his time called for Christians to live courageously for God in the face of, of, of turmoil and evil in World War II. Uh, he was part of that time. He was eventually executed. If you know his story, he was executed by, at Hitler's direct order to be killed. He once wrote these words. He said, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. And not to act is to act. Boy, those words describe Israel in this moment, don't they? And the people did not answer him a word. And yet, what are they doing? They are screaming by not answering. That's what they're doing. By their silence, they're speaking. By their inaction, they are acting. If you flip your note page over and then look at verse 22 in our unfolding story here in chapter 18, we read these words. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. But just, and this is just another reminder for the people of what the odds are. 
It's actually 850 to 1. He doesn't want them to miss that. Verse 23. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. We like this idea, Elijah. We like it. Great plan. From an earthly perspective, every advantage goes to whom? To the Baals. To the Baals and to Asherah. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. And that's important. Just Again, you're going to get to go first. You get to, you get to kind of lead the way. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Can you create the picture in your mind's eye? It's been said that it doesn't matter how how uh, it doesn't matter what you believe so long as whatever you believe you believe it with sincerity. It's been said that. What's what's your take on that thought? It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere in believing it. No, you're shaking your head. No. That's wrong. And that's wrong every time. The object of our faith means everything, doesn't it? When the contest begins, the prophets of Baal are confident. They have home field advantage. This is Baal's turf. They're on Baal's mountain. So they call on Baal and they make a real spectacle of themselves. They, they start out slow with chants and incantations. And then they start to sway back and forth. And, and this gives way to dancing around the altar and then jumping around the altar. But nothing is happening. Verse 27. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing or or thinking or pondering, or he's relieving himself, had to go to the bathroom, or he's on a journey, he's out of town, or perhaps he's asleep and you need to wake him up. Now we frown on mockery, don't we? We frown on mockery, but Elijah does this to expose the powerlessness of Baal. He does this to ensure that the many thousands of fence riders who are on this mountain in this moment that have gathered for the showdown don't miss the truth. The object of your faith really does matter. But Baal isn't showing up. His prophets reason that perhaps he must be looking for an even more aggressive demonstration of their sincerity. And so verse 28, And they cried aloud and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and and lances until the blood gushed out of them. so, So this is really becoming quite a bizarre scene. And as midday passed... They raved on until the time of the offering of the sacrifice. But there was no voice 
No one answered. No one paid attention. There's a tone of hopelessness. There's a tone of finality woven into those words purposefully. One can be incredibly sincere and yet be sincerely wrong. And that's what we're seeing here. There are today, literally, church family, there are literally today billions around the world who are sincerely pursuing false gods. Who are, and, 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 and they're just as pathetic, these gods, as the powerless Baal is here. Some have even taken their sincerity, as we know, to radical extremes of suicide terrorism. Man, you know, if devotion to your beliefs, if sincerity is what it takes to reach heaven, those persons are in, right? And that's what they believe. We're automatically in if we commit suicide for our God with a small g. But sincerity is not what it takes. Scripture never places the emphasis on the sincerity of faith. It places the emphasis on the object. Right? The Apostle Paul will say shortly before he is martyred for his faith, I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. Right? Not how sincerely I believe, but I know whom I have believed. I'm convinced he's able to keep what I've entrusted to him against the day when I stand before him. Peter will declare in Acts chapter 4, verse 12 Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name, no other name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved than the name of Jesus. Right? It's not sincerity. It's Jesus. It's all about the object of faith. Baal was unable to respond uh, despite an incredible demonstration of sincerity because it's all about the object. And this is exactly where Elijah is going to take the people of Israel now. To the one true God, the real object of faith, the one who is worthy of faith. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And that's an important line in this story. He's going to invite everybody, thousands of people now, literally thousands of people, to come in close, as close as they can get, in order to give them every assurance that there is no trickery on his part for what is about to happen. Truth never needs to be afraid of close examination, does it? Never. Because God is truth. Elijah says, come on in here and, 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 and carefully watch everything that I do. When this day is done, no one's going to be able to say there was some funny business going on. They'll only be able to say, wow, Elijah's God, whom, whom they have forsaken, has shown up. And all the people came near to him. Verse 30. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down some 60 years earlier. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. 
And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of Yahweh, in the name of the Lord. And church family, what, what, what Elijah does here is remind Israel that they are the people of God. Twelve tribes that are supposed to be united under the banner of one God whose name is Yahweh. An altar to his name has not stood on Carmel for all of these years. And he rebuilds the altar with 12 stones to remind them of who they are. And he made a trench around the altar, verse 32, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars of water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Everyone must have been blown away by this. Elijah has made it impossible for this sacrifice to even burn. It's not going to burn now. Even if he had been up to some trickery, that suspicion is now put to rest by the time the twelfth jar of water is poured over the altar. Verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word, at your command. Verse 37, answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. What a contrast, church family, to the the carryings on of 850 prophets of Baal. They went on and on for perhaps six and seven hours until the blood flows. Elijah (laughs) prays a prayer that would take about 30 seconds. And that's if he talks slow. The length of the prayer carries no weight in this moment, does it? It doesn't carry any weight at all. It doesn't carry any weight with God, for sure. Because it's not, it's not what you're trying to do when you pray. It's not about trying to win God over with all your words, right? We sometimes fall into the trap of doing that, thinking that if I come up with enough words, I'll get his attention. It's not about that. What is prayer about? It's about content, isn't it? It's about content. This prayer has only two motives. The honor of God first and the hearts of God's people second. Those are the only two things that are on Elijah's heart. Yahweh Elohim, Lord God, vindicate yourself before this arrogant, foolish, fence-riding people who, who are your people. Vindicate yourself. Reaffirm, confirm truths that they have spurned and forsaken, namely that the truth that you are God and that there is no God but you. Leave this people no alternative but to fall on their faces before you, forsaking all others but you. This is really the substance of the prayer. 
that everyone would know and honor God alone and that the hearts of the people would be turned back to him. In 30 seconds, Elijah leaves us with no doubt as to where he stands. And his words remind me, maybe they remind you too, of God's words, his promise, his own heart towards Israel. These words come out of Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and what? Heal their land. That's a promise from God. As you and I think about our own nation and as we observe the, the spiritual confusion that has overtaken her, we can do no better, church family, than to take Elijah's prayer and make it our prayer for our nation. Oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in America. Answer, O Lord, answer that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. And you have turned the hearts back to you. Well, now the moment of truth has arrived. Everything has been done that needs to be done. The attention of the people has been captured by three and a half years of terrible drought. Baal's power has been called into, the, into question, into suspicion. The king has been confronted and the showdown has been arranged. The Baal prophets have had their chance. God's altar has been rebuilt. The sacrifice has been prepared. The wood has been laid. The trench has been dug. The water has been poured over it. And the prayer has been prayed. And the request has been made. For your honor, O Lord. For the people's heart, O God. Well, now it's time to stand back. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. <laughs> what a masterpiece of understatement verse 38 really is. Can you imagine what this moment must have been like? The sun is low in the sky over the Mediterranean because the Baal prophets have taken all this time it's late in the day. There's kind of a, a bronze hue that's been cast across the landscape. The people are riveted to this altar that, that has been newly constructed by Elijah. The Baal prophets, covered in their own blood, stand gaunt and pale and afraid. King Ahab shuffles back and forth nervously because he's uncertain of what's about to happen. Instantly, the scene is shattered by a tremendous roar that grows louder and louder and louder. The sky overhead takes on a kind of a white hot color. A blast of very hot air washes across the top of that mountain and across everyone. And the fire of God just slams into this altar with an incredibly thunderous force. A blast of steam rises up from the altar immediately as the water gets vaporized. The bull carcass disappears. Then the wood disappears. 
the people shield their faces as the 12 stones begin to glow red hot and then they disappear. The ground around the altar starts to liquefy and and just like everything else, the dust gets sucked up and disappears. And all the time there is this deafening roar as as if it's it's the world's largest blast furnace. And absolutely everybody is terrified down to the soles of their feet. And then it's gone. As quickly and as suddenly as it came, it's gone. And there is silence. The landscape is once more amber in color in the late afternoon sun. But where the altar had been, there is nothing now but a blackened pit with wisps of smoke spiraling up. Can you picture that? A visual and undeniable confirming answer from God as to who is really God. And the impact of this moment drove the people to the ground. You notice this? To the ground. Not just to their knees, but to the ground. Flat out on the ground, on their faces, pressed into the dust. And the realization sweeps over the people. Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, has just visited this place. And we're alive. Verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. You know, some commentators see here the expression of great praise and joyful celebration on the part of the people. But I don't see that. Do you see that? I do not see that in this moment. I suspect that these are actually words spoken from the place of awestruck Fear joined to a deep regret and repentance. These are, I believe, the words of confession, not celebration. These are the words of of questioning. Because in the heart of the people gathered, there had to be this realization that the fires of holy God could have, and in fact should have, rightly and justly fallen upon them. And consumed them instead of the altar and that sacrifice. Only they're alive. They're alive in this moment on the mountain. But only because of the mercy. And the grace of Yahweh Elohim. They had given their hearts to another. They had given their devotion to another. To a God who was no God at all. They deserved judgment. They deserved the fire, didn't they? But the mercy of God and the sacrifice were from Him. The sacrifice took the wrath. Now think about that. Is this not, brother, sister in Jesus, is this not a powerful picture A powerful picture of what God has done for you and me through the death of His Son on the cross for us. 
did not he, the Lord Jesus, take the full and undiluted wrath of God against the sin residing in us? And did he not hang in our place, die our death so that we might, by faith in him, be given a second chance, a new life? Do you and I now say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Yes, we do. We do. But only because of the mercy and the grace of God that brought judgment upon the sacrifice and not upon us. The sacrifice being Jesus. Can you say amen with me? The blinders are torn from Israel's eyes. Her heart is open. She says, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And with those words, man, oh man, does Elijah kick it into high gear now. Verse 40. And Elijah said to all the people, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. They seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Oh. Really? <laughs> really? Really? 850 of them? Yes. At God's direction. Just like everything else that has been a part of this day has been at God's direction, 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah meet their end. You know, we're spared the gory details of what must have been an incredible scene of carnage. Thankfully, we're spared that. It is enough for us simply to know, church family, that that happened. And the Holy Spirit wants to make sure that that detail is not lost on you and me. What this is, in reality, is a one-verse declaration by God that if His people are really going to be His people, they must, they must deal decisively with anyone or anything that would want to steal their heart away from him. It's a call to clean house, isn't it? I mean, that's really what this is. It's a call to clean house. And Israel does this on this day. The true God had showed up. The imposter needed to be put to death. Fellow Christian, is this not a call to action to you and me as we live life in Jesus? It is a call to tolerate no rivals to Jesus in our life. And there is certainly no shortage of rival gods with a small g that would like to have the place in our life that Jesus has. Their name not likely to be Baal or Asherah. But that rival to Jesus could have a name that you could instantly identify in your own life personally right now. Maybe it's a secret sin. Some addiction that you continue to give a home to. Or maybe as it is for many, uh, gods with a small g that we would perhaps know of by the name career. Or, or position, or reputation, acceptance 
from others, possessions. For every follower of Jesus, the rival to his reign and rule is going to be different. But whatever or whoever it is, those things want our heart. They want our devotion. And Elijah's actions are a sobering reminder that rivals to Jesus must be dealt with without compromise. They need to be taken down to Kishon and put to death. Is there such a rival in your life that needs to go to that place? That's a question only you and your Lord can answer. But this passage reminds us of the truth of that. Mount Carmel. It's one of the most amazing moments in all of Scripture, I believe. It is just about everything to offer. Lots of action, risks, dangers, great reminders, sobering warnings. It would make a great movie, right? But what Mount Carmel is, more than anything else, it's about God. Who through one person totally sold out to him could do. One person sold out to God could turn a nation back to its Lord. That's what this story is about. 1 Kings 18 and Mount Carmel are called to us, church family, to believe that we could be modern day Elijah's in a nation that is no different than Israel was 2,800 years ago. Do you believe that? I believe that. And if we believe that, who knows what might happen? Let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, thank you for this amazing time uh, in, in this chapter and in this moment. Thank you. Thank you for reminding us of so many things from this passage. We would like to perhaps come back here again next week if you would, would be pleased to allow us to do that and, and maybe pull out some more truths that would be a help to us, Lord. But in this moment, thank you for revealing yourself, reminding us of who you are and your awesome, great power. Lord, for me, my, for myself and for my friends, I ask that you might use this moment to cause us to seriously take examination of our own lives. Are we giving quarter to any rival, to you, Lord Jesus? And then by your power, by your grace, your mercy, but by your power, by your spirit, by your word, would you enable us to take those rivals down to the Kishon Valley and put them to death, that you might be Lord alone? We'll say thanks. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said.